You are listening to the weekend message of Crossroads Church North Campus. Crossroads exists to make much of Jesus, and we do this by following in the way of Jesus and making disciples who love God and love others. To find out more about Crossroads, go to crossroadslive.com. Thanks for listening. Grace and peace. The Psalms are a well-worn collection of songs, hymns, and prayers that speak to the human experience. Life is not a level path. In this world, we will experience joy, sorrow, anger, shame, love, jealousy, hope, and more. Emotions are a gift and a part of our God-given design. But how do we direct these emotions and keep our eyes fixed on God in the highs and lows of life? King David authored many psalms, and we will learn how to steward our lives well in the highest highs and the lowest lows as we study through some of his greatest hits. Good morning. Today we are in Psalm 22, and we're in the ESV version, and verses 1 to 21. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried, and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb, You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of wild oxen. You may be seated. Baptisms to now reading a a passage of lament. Um, 
it, it, it should feel stark. Because where we're beginning is where so many stories that each of us have faced begin until we find the hope and the life of Christ in our life. This psalm speaks to desperation and isolation. And what I've discovered is that for all of us, there are certain moments where it can seem as though we're facing some uneven odds in life, that everything is stacked against us and there seems to be no way forward and there seems to be no hope. There's an artist that I enjoy listening to, and, and one of his songs is, is called Uneven Odds. And the story of the song is, is written from the perspective of someone who has just become an entrusted guardian and is now speaking to a child that they have been entrusted with, but this child has already at a young age experienced deep pain, sorrow, and loss. Because his mother passed away due to illness, and then he lost his father, not to physical death, but emotional abandonment. The dad could just never recover. And so we read these words in this song that say, I, I once knew your father well. He fought tears as he spoke of your mother's health. And I guess a part of him just couldn't return. Forgiveness is a lesson he cursed you to learn. As your guardian, I was instructed well to make sense of God's love in the fires of hell. Though I don't expect you to understand just to live what little life your broken heart can. Every time I hear this song, what wells in me and what moves in me is that I can attach it to real faces and real people that have experienced abandonment, pain, loss, sorrow, shame, and just feel like life is coming at them. And they have a, a, an extreme disadvantage, it feels like. Like they have not been set up well to flourish or to experience joy. And when, when we see this, and when we experience this, we can begin to ask questions of like, okay, God, I understand that you are good, but why would you allow this to happen? God, why would you allow this person to face yet another trial, another sickness, another illness, another battle? Why would you allow this to go on? Where are you? Why are you allowing this to happen to me? When are you finally going to show up and do something about this? Because we can feel acutely the uneven odds of life stacked against us, that we can never catch a break or catch a breath, and all we seem to catch is, is broken and, and bad. And this psalm begins with the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We know that the author of this was David. We don't know which moment in his life caused him to, to feel this despair. There's actually many moments in the life of David as we're reading through in 1 Samuel and we'll continue on in 2 Samuel uh, in our summer reading where you'll see reason for David to feel utterly alone, utterly despised, scorned, and mocked. So we don't know which exact one, but what we find in here and what we find in the full force of these words is a place to aim our angst, to aim our questions, to aim our wondering, to aim our, our questions of why. Because what David is going to show us, and ultimately what Jesus will reveal to us, is that even in our wondering, even in our whys, we can find a hope that is unwavering. 
So let's begin in, in verse 1 of chapter 22. And I'm just going to say from the onset, I know you're looking at this psalm, and we read a portion of it. We're going to cover the whole thing. And right now you're starting to do the math. That's 31 verses. You're like, this is, we're here for a while. So I hope you packed a lunch. Now, we're, we're going we're gonna to jam through some spots because what I want to see is the overall movement of what's happening here. And we can really break this psalm down into to three sections. That first section, verses 1 through 18, is it's a lament, pure and simple. It's a lament. It's a, a deep expression of grief and sorrow. David is crying out in his desperation. And then at verse 19, we see this shift, and we have these three verses, which are a beautiful prayer for God to be his salvation, to rescue and to redeem and to show himself near in the midst of his pain. And then in verse 22, especially knowing where we're beginning, we have this crazy turn where suddenly David is going to start praising God for his goodness and what he has done. And so as we work our way through this psalm, we are going to find a, a trajectory for ourselves to work through our own moments where we feel a little unhinged or wondering what God is doing. Verse 1 begins by saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Again, these words start, and we feel the desperation. We feel the urgency. There's a cry to God. There's a, a hope in God. He's directing himself towards God, but his question is, why have you left me here? There's a sense of abandonment, of longing and loneliness in these words. Why am I left here to fend for myself? I, I thought you had me. See, it's moments like this where we, we look around and we can begin to think. It can't, it can't get any worse than this, can it? Which too many of us have experienced that it, it can. Usually when you say that, someone's like, shh, Because we can reach another level where like, I didn't think this, this was possible. Where we begin to internalize these words and wonder if God has forgotten us. This psalm is one that when we read it aloud, we can feel the heaviness of it. And it almost gives us attention to, to, to pray this aloud as our own prayer. Can we actually aim our angst so directly at God? Can we show our frustration so clearly? But as we read these words, I know what some of you are thinking. There, there's, a, there's another familiarity to these words that are spoken, and you're like, would you just get there already? We've heard these words multiple times, not just from King David, right? Because before King David ever put pen to parchment to write these words, and after he put them, a thousand years later, they would be spoken by another king, a crucified king. Because in Matthew 27, 46, we read these very words on the lips of who? Of Jesus, as he hung on the cross. At about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, seeing, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That's the Aramaic. He's saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There he was, with the darkened skies, hanging upon a cross, 
Now, Jesus' journey to that moment, his journey to the cross was not an accident. He was not surprised by it, but it was one that was filled with rejection and sorrow and pain. And in this moment, at the peak of his, his, his absolute horror, as those are circling around him, they're mocking him, and he is bleeding and battered and bruised, and he's hanging on a cross. What is the psalm that comes to mind? What is the scripture that he begins to sing aloud in his head? It's Psalm 22. He begins to identify with this lament, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The sinless Savior, the Son of God, hangs upon the cross and he desperately cries out for God. He's borrowing the words of his descendant David because Jesus was in the long lineage of King David and now he not only speaks them, but Jesus suddenly gives full color to these words. So as we start, I I want you to to mark that, underline that, just remind yourself of where we are beginning in this journey of lament, where we begin, because it's going to be important to understand where we get to at the end. And what you've probably already noticed is that as we look at this psalm, there's going to be a few different lenses that we look at it through. One is David writing and pleading before God, aiming his angst, his sorrow, his pain, and asking these questions of why, but keeping an unwavering hope in God. But then we also see another lens through which Jesus becomes the ultimate fulfillment of these words, embodying them, living them out. But then there's another path too of, okay, now what do we do with these words? How do we step into them? How do we live these words out? And so picking up in verse 3, we see that he's just uh, started with lament. And then he gets to verse 3 and he says, Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and, our, and you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. Three times that word trusted, David is recounting in the midst of his pain. Is that, God, where are you? But I know, I know you've shown up for our fathers in the past. They trusted you, and you, you delivered them. They, you heard their cry when they were in Egypt. You heard their cry throughout the book of Judges when other nations would come in and, and, and press them down. You would show up, and so and they trusted you, and their trust wasn't misplaced. And so he's just crying out again, like, Lord, where are you? I know you're worthy of my trust. And even though I feel abandoned, I'm not going to abandon my hope in you. And so he continues. But I, verse 6, am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. Here again, David, he's looking to the past of where God has shown up, but now he returns to his present day plight. He's like, but I am a worm. I am worthless. People look at me and they mock and they scorn me. I'm despised. Again, we, we don't know the full, uh, the full moment that this was occurring in the life of David, but we hear these words and, and they start to trigger some other things to remind us of some other places in Scripture where one is spoken about of being despised and scorned, where another prophet spoke of a, a suffering servant who was to come. Isaiah said these words in chapter 53, verse 3. He says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. 
These words that were spoken by by David and now these words that are spoken by Isaiah. We see Jesus, when he comes onto the scene, he lives these out. The one who is sent to seek and to save is experiencing scorn and ridicule. But let's continue on. Verse 7 and 8. What do do they say in verse 7 and 8? It says, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. We hear kind of the arrogant mocking of those wagging their heads at David in this moment of like, you said you trusted in God? Let him rescue you from this situation you found yourself in. But again, as we're reading through these words in black and white, if you want to see them in full color, let's just look to the life of Jesus. Matthew 27, we begin to see all sorts of these colors come through. That Matthew, in his count of Jesus' life, he's using Psalm 22 throughout the crucifixion scene. Because Jesus not only sung these words, he not only said them aloud as he was being crucified, but we see these words in his life and in his death. And so just to give you some comparison, I want to put up this chart. This is something if you want to take a picture of this and go back to it later just to kind of study through. This is just helpful when you see Scripture interpreting Scripture, okay? When we were like, what what does this passage mean? A lot of times we see Scripture speak to itself. And so when we look at Psalm 22 as we're going through, remember Psalm 22, 1, where it began? It began with the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we saw that again play out in the life of Jesus in Matthew 27, 46, when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then Psalm 22, 7, it says, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. And then in Matthew 27, 39, what do we read? And those who passed by, they derided him, wagging their heads. They're aimed at Jesus, wagging their heads at him, mocking him and deriding him. They were seeing this psalm come alive in the crucifixion of Jesus. Psalm 22, 8, he trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him, let him rescue him, for he delights in him. And then going on, Matthew 27, 43, what does it say? They're looking at him, they're like, he trusts in God. They're looking up at Jesus as he's being crucified. He's hanging on a cross, he cannot do anything. He trusts in God, let God deliver him if if he desires him. Because he said he's the son of God. They're basically mocking him saying, prove yourself. Prove who you think you are. And then Psalm twenty-two, eighteen. it says, they divide my garments among them, and from my clothing they cast lots. We see this in Matthew 27, 35, the same thing. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Now, David is, is speaking this prayer of, of lament, but we're seeing this prophetic edge in this psalm. That's speaking to the one who would ultimately suffer for all of humanity that in him we might have life. See, David put down his own anguish, his own angst. And John Goldengay, theologian, he says this. He says, it's a prayer for Israelites to pray when they need to. So it is hugely encouraging because it gives them permission to acknowledge their sense of abandonment and their fears without shame. That means when we feel this, when we feel the question of why welling up within us, we know we're in good standing because we're standing with David. And not only are we standing with David, we're standing with Jesus. When we feel that sense of, oh, God, what are you doing? We can come to him with that. We have permission to do that. He invites that in. 
But John Golden Gay continues. He says, but it is also one of the most horrifying of the prayers that the Psalter gives Israelites to pray. So it's not surprising that when Israel's Messiah goes through his martyrdom, the prayer fits uniquely on his lips. We see a unique pairing of this played out in the life of Christ. But continuing on, verse 9, yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. David, again, returning to his lament, he's like, you, you've proven yourself since I was young. I, I've, I've known faith since I was a child, nursing with my mother. She pointed me towards you. That's all I've ever known. Yet in this moment, I feel abandoned and forsaken as though I am alone. And verse 11 is a prayer that I think we can all identify with, that we've all felt at some point where we say, be not far from me. Don't keep your distance. I need you. Why? For trouble is near. Trouble is in my face. It is overwhelming. And I need to know that I'm not standing alone. And there seems to be none around to help me. Chuck Swindoll would say at this moment, David has lost all of the crutches that he leaned on in his life. There's, there's nothing for him to hold on to other than to come and plead before God, to wonder at his absence, to ask why while hoping, while hoping and trusting in the unwavering one that he will still prove himself true. But beginning in verse 12, he begins to describe this affliction that he is facing. It says, many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. He is feeling the pressure of his enemies, and it is strong. The use of bulls here uh, was, was a symbol that represented strength. Bulls, when they were let loose, could gore you. They could charge you. They, they had strength. But he speaks of the bulls of Bashan, which obviously we hear, and we're like, we all know the best bulls come from Bashan. They're the strongest, right? And that was true. In the hill country, in the upper part of the, the northern kingdom, the best bulls, the strongest bulls, they come from Bashan. And so he's describing, it's not just like a little bit of pressure on me. It's like the full strength that is coming against me. They're like ravening and roaring lions just ready to pounce on me. Charles Spurgeon would describe this psalm pointing us to Christ. He would say this, The priests, elders, scribes, Pharisees, rulers, and captains bellowed around the cross like wild cattle. Fed in the fat and solitary pastures of Bashan, full of strength and fury, they stamped and foamed around the innocent one and longed to gore him to death with their cruelties. Because as Jesus hung on that cross, he had people coming and wagging their heads uh, had people come and mock him, ridicule, laugh, scoff. Look at you now. David continues his lament by verse 14. I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and they gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. 
as we read this, we can actually feel the unraveling of someone, can't we? That David is coming to his complete and utter end of himself. His strength is just fleeing as he sees this massive wave of life engulfing him and all of it just floods out of him. He has nothing to stand against it. How many of us have had that moment where we feel like, I can't, I can't, I can't take one more conversation. I can't take one more person's well wishes in this moment of what I'm experiencing. I can't stand any longer. I've got nothing left. I'm emptied of myself. I'm poured out. There's there's nothing left. I've got nothing. You've taken everything. I'm at my wit's end in this moment. And now I'm encircled by dogs prowling and encompassing me, by evildoers encircling me. See, David in this moment, is being enveloped by the darkness. And it's squeezing out any hope that there's, there's any bit of light left for him. But if we take this a step further, if we pull back from the lens of David and we look at this through the lens of Christ, we see that Jesus walked down this, this path and he felt it in full force. That these words of Psalm 22, they eerily and accurately describe the last moments of Jesus. His bones were literally out of joint. When you were crucified uh, by the Romans, uh, over time, your your arms would, would stretch because you were just so weak, you had no strength left. And so it would begin to pull and to tug until you would literally come out of joint. And then you would struggle against the the nails that were dug into your arms to try and get some form of breath. And of course, his heart would melt like wax because those around him who said, I'd be with you, had abandoned him. And those that he had come to save were mocking him. We were told that Jesus, as he was upon the cross, at one point cried out, I thirst He just just needed a drink of water because everything had run dry. Verse 17, it says, I count all my bones. Now this seems like just this kind of flippant little statement here. I count all my bones. But what we know is that Jesus, although he was battered and bruised and that he would die in brutality, his bones were not broken. See, if it wasn't going fast enough when you were crucified, if you were continuing to to have just enough strength to push up on the nail that was driven between your legs, to push up in that pain and get a breath to breathe just a little bit longer, they knew that if they broke your legs, well, you couldn't push up anymore. And then you would just finally suffocate. But we read in the gospel accounts that when they came to Jesus, he had already died before they could even break his legs. So he was one whose bones We could count. They were not broken. Verse 16, it says, they've pierced my hands and feet. Now, keep in mind, this is is long before the idea of crucifixion had ever even come into being. This was not a known form of punishment when David was writing this, and yet he is writing with an accuracy about what our Savior would experience. And then as we've already looked at, verse 18, we see this play out, that they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So when we look at this through the lens of Christ, we are confronted by the immense weight of the cross. 
And it gives us a little bit better understanding of, of why this psalm, this psalm in particular, would come to Jesus in his moment of pain and sorrow and abandonment. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Darkness enveloping light as the uneven odds seem to be overwhelmingly stacked against him. And so for these first 18 verses, David cries out, expressing his deep grief and sorrow. This is lament. This is what it means to lament. You see something and you grieve it. You call it out. You speak it out. But now he begins to shift. And we have these three verses that become an urgent, heartfelt prayer. There's an urgency to this prayer. There's a desperation to this prayer. But there's also a turning in the midst of this prayer. Beginning in verse 19, he says, But you, O Lord, do not be far off. Oh, you, my help. See, he's still acknowledging, even in his desperation, where's this help going to come from? He knows his only chance is God. So you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. And what we see is David lamenting, why, why, what are you doing? Where are you? And now he's saying, save me. Rescue me, be near, come quickly, deliver me. See, I think this short prayer is a prayer uh, that whether we know we're quoting it or not has been been prayed at so many bedsides. It's been prayed by so many of those wrestling with addiction. It's been prayed by so many of those walking through job loss. It's been prayed by so many of those experiencing sudden deaths, illness, war. See, it's in the moments of bleakness and weakness that we are driven to our knees. And we come to a place where we cry out, God, be near. Come quickly. Deliver me. Save me. Rescue me. And now as he has done throughout, David, who is writing this, inspired by the Spirit carrying him along, he aims our angst at the only answer to our ache. He moves from lament to prayer, and now suddenly David goes into full-blown praise, and it feels so disjointed. It almost feels alarming as we're going through this because he was so desperate. But then beginning in verse 22, he says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. And you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. Somewhere in the midst of this, in between verses 21 and 22, David has experienced the answer to his prayer, and he is praising God. You have not abandoned me. You have not left me on my own. You heard the cry of the afflicted. You have heard the cry of my despair. And I will praise your name. I will give credit where credit is due. I will take none of that on me and that I I just did the right things and I I willed it to the, the right thing. No, you showed up in a moment where I had no strength. And you, and you did it. He cries out that God has drawn near to the afflicted. Uh, Sometimes we can read through these and there's these these golden little nuggets in there. 
For he has not despised, verse 24, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted and he has not hidden his face from him. Meaning all those moments when you're in the midst of your pain and you're wondering, where are you? You are not unseen. And when it feels as though you have been abandoned, you have not been abandoned. He is working in ways that you cannot see him. And so we aim that pain towards the one who is unwavering and we keep our eyes fixed on him. And when we feel so locked in our despair and it comes and I've been there where I'm like, I see no way forward. And even those who are on the other side who are like, no, trust me, it gets better. I'm like, I don't trust anyone right now because this hurts so bad. And you begin to think, am I just too far gone? I'm never gonna experience that. Let me tell you, you are not too far gone. For he has come to seek and to save and he is after you and he is with you in the midst of your pain. You are never beyond the reach of God. You are not alone and your faith in God in those moments where you do not feel like trusting him but you choose to trust him. You know what I'm talking about there? Like I don't, I don't feel like you're trusting but I'm gonna choose because I know of who you are and we step into that. That's faith. We place our faith in him, and when we place our faith in him, it is not misplaced. And David continues, from you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nation shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations." Again, David is proclaiming. Not only is he praising God, but he's trying now to bring everyone with him. Right? He's like, he is so good. He has shown himself so faithful. Come with me. Now, here's one of the things that that I've, I've experienced. When you are in the midst of despair, right? Because we're like, how did he get from praising God? Like, he was over here and like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of you are like, I'd like to stay there because that's where I am. Don't talk to me about this praise stuff. I don't think I can get there. I don't think that's possible. You're like, let's just go back to the lament because I understand that. What I've discovered in my own life is that the people who come and tell you, no, 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 praise is possible. Sometimes you're like, whatever, you don't understand. Until someone comes who's experienced the pain that you've been walking through. Right, when they they speak to, and suddenly you feel the weight of their words, like, oh, you know. You know the depths I was in. Oh, you're speaking a language that I can suddenly understand. Those are the people that the weight of their words suddenly you, you just grab hold of because you're like, wait, you've, you've found a way out. This is why it's so important what David is modeling for us that when we lament and then God proves himself and then we praise him that we're, we're loud about that so people know I understand what it's like to be over here when it feels like he has forsaken you but let me show you my journey that got me here and it may look somewhat different for you but I just want to remind you that it's possible. See, this is what David is doing is he's aiming our angst toward God. And then verse 29, it says, all the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him and shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity, meaning all the generations shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. 
Just, just grab that last phrase. He has done it. Where did we start? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It moves to this prayer, this plea, and suddenly now David is saying, you know what? He did it. He showed up. He's faithful, and his name will be praised for generation after generation after generation. He is king who is over all kings, and his lordship will be known by everyone. Why? Because he's done it. His righteousness is true. His goodness can be counted on. He is the one that we are looking for. And honestly, the entirety of this psalm comes down to that last verse. It comes down to this idea that we can proclaim his righteousness because he has done it. He has proven himself and his word. Now, what I find so interesting is that the phrasing of this verse could actually be put another way. We could read this last verse that they will proclaim his righteousness from generation to generation. Because it is finished. When it says he has done it, that's the weight those words are carrying. It is, it is finished. The work is done. Now again, if you've been traveling along with us and you've been seeing the comparisons of the words of Christ coming out in this psalm, where do we see Jesus proclaim those words? On the cross when he cries out, it is is finished. It is paid in full. The debt of your sin, shame, sorrow, the things that you could never overcome on your own, he has paid it all. The death that you deserve because of your sin and my sin and the, the, the things we could never overcome on our own, he has paid it all. And it is finished. It is done. There is nothing we can add to it. There is nothing we can do to earn it. It is finished. Why? Because he has done it. So now, as you sit there and you imagine Jesus on the cross, dying in all the brutality of that moment, and the psalm that is coming to his mind is Psalm 22, and he begins by saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And as he's battling through those moments of horror and shame, the last thing he proclaims is, it is finished, meaning that he was meditating through the entire psalm. That he, he begins with desperation, but what does he end with? Trust in who God is and what he can accomplish in your life. For it is finished, for he has done it. Jesus lives these words. David proclaimed them in the, the power of the Holy Spirit, but Jesus brings them to life. He, he meets our death with his life. And it is finished, for he has done it. See, we think that the uneven odds of life are stacked against us. And that's why in that song, Uneven Odds, I love the chorus of it. What does it say? The chorus says this. It says, maybe your light is a seed and the darkness the dirt. In spite of the uneven odds, beauty lifts from the earth. There's this echo, this whisper of what Jesus has accomplished on the cross, that the king of all did not account equality with God as something to be grasped, but rather he took on the form of humanity. He humbled himself even to the point of death so that in him we might have life. And because of Christ, it means that the uneven odds of life are truly uneven. 
But contrary to what we think, the odds are eternally stacked in our favor because of Christ. Meaning, there is no dark that he cannot light. No pain that cannot be undone. There is no death for which he cannot bring life. And in our wondering and in our whys, we can continue to hope in the unwavering work of Christ. If we trust that it is finished. Why? Because he's done it. And what this means for us is that it is finished and he's done it. Right? But we have questions in our head, but I, I don't, you don't understand the pain that I've, I've walked through in life. And you're right, I, I, I don't know all that you've walked through. But I know he does. And I know that he's experienced the darkest of valleys. And you know what? On your behalf, it's finished, for he's done it. That he will walk with you in those moments. He will meet you in those moments of pain. You are not abandoned. You are not alone. But what about my part? How do I earn this? How do I will this to be? You can't. It's finished. He's done it. He's paid it in full. You don't need to add tip or any change on top of what he's done. He's accomplished it on your behalf. Right? But you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I carry. You don't know what I have. No, but he does. And he willingly went to that cross and hung there for you so he could pronounce that it is finished for he's done it. But you don't know my secrets, the things that I don't tell anyone. Yeah, I know, but he does. And even so, while we were enemies, Christ died to reconcile us to himself. And when he did that, it was finished for he's done it. But what, what if I fail? What if, what, if I, what if I can't do this on my own? You don't have to because he's going to be with you and he's going to place his spirit in you to give you strength to walk with him because it is finished and he's done it. But how do I know he won't abandon me? How do I know that, that he won't just take off? Why? Because we look through the entirety of Scripture and it is his pursuit of his creation, his coming after us with the full force of everything he has, willingly giving the entirety of his being that we may have life and he can proclaim it is finished for he has done it. What Jesus has done has made all of our efforts and all of our own self-crucifixions obsolete that ache that we have to be free in him, that ache that we have that comes with our sorrow, our pain, the ache that we have to be restored, that is all fulfilled in the hope that we have in Jesus. And he proclaims it's finished because he's done it. The death that we deserve, he died in our place. The guilt, the shame, the sorrow that we all carry, he takes upon himself. And he says, if you turn to me, if you trust in me, it is finished, for he has done it. And so this morning, as we look at this psalm, and we see the brutality of the cross shine through it, we also see its beauty. In the same way, as we look at this pool and those who stepped into it, we see the brokenness that we all carry, but we see the beauty of Christ shining through it when he says, it is finished, for he has done it. That new life is possible for all who trust in him. 
So even if you find yourself in a season of lament, please don't hear this as just a, you got to trust more. You just got to try harder. No, allow him to meet you. Get real honest with that lament and turn towards him. Bring all the ache and the angst that you have towards the only one who can answer that. And keep your eyes fixed on him, for he is unwavering. And he is the only one who can proclaim in our lives that it is finished. Why? Because he has done it. Will you pray with me? Father, your word is living and active. And Lord, as we read this psalm, I know there's many in a season of lament. And God, I pray that they would keep their aim towards you, that they would trust that even though they may feel abandoned, would they not abandon their faith in you because our faith in you is never misplaced. So, Lord, would you meet them in the valley? Would you walk with them? Bring others around them. And, Lord, for those who, who have seen your hand move, who have experienced life in the midst of, of death, would we be quick to praise, to proclaim what you have done, to proclaim what is possible only in you, and Lord, for any in this room who have yet to say yes to you, God, would they know that that offer stands and that you have paid their debt in full and life in you can begin right now if we just turn and trust and say yes to you. So God, as we enter this time of worship, would you move in us? Would you speak to us? Would your uh, spirit guide our thoughts towards what you want us to examine and think on? But Lord, would we always know that we have an unwavering hope that is secure and steadfast in Christ. That it is finished, for he has done it. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to move into our time of, of response. And I would just encourage you, uh, if you just need time to reflect, maybe you are in a season of lament and you need others to come around you. We're going to have people available to pray throughout the room. And I'll be down here, but there's prayer stations in the back. We'd love to pray with you. If you just need to sit and, and examine uh, and, and allow God to just search your heart, uh, then use the space to do that. We don't have a lot of free space in our schedules to sit before God. So, so take advantage of this. Don't rush through this. Just be present to what he has for you. And then we have the communion elements available, and you can take that when you're ready. But I would encourage you. When we come to the table, that's, that's a reminder, that's a declaration of just who God is and who Jesus is on our behalf. And maybe this morning you need the reminder that it truly is finished, that he has paid your debt in full. And so I'd encourage you to sit, let that truth wash over you, examine your heart. And if there's things that you need to repent from, turn from back towards him. 
And then when you're ready, go ahead and go back and partake of the elements, declaring once again that it's in him you trust. For in him it is finished, for he has done it. And maybe you're in a season of praise and you just want to sing at the top of your lungs, then by all means, give credit where credit is due to our maker and sustainer, the good father, the one who has chased us and pursued us, who is over all things. And let us use this time to turn our attention towards him. Let's worship together. Father, as we just conclude this time, would you just carry us forward from this place, praising your name, lifting up what you have done, keeping our eyes fixed on you, trusting that it is finished for you have done it. And so, Lord, we thank you for who you are. We praise you for your greatness and for your glory. We worship you and we thank you for your goodness. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This morning as we um, close, I just, I want to say one thing really quick. Um, Man, it's been a, a, a wild and full week here at Crossroads. Um, we had over 200 kids just shaking the very rafters of this building with VBS. Um, and I just want to say to those of you who served and, and volunteered and gave of your time, uh, we were walking away, Rachel and I, after the, the picnic and the barbecue, and man, our hearts are just so full uh, for the ways in which so many of you just joyfully gave of yourself so that kids could know the hope and love of Jesus. Um, and so I just thank you for that, but thank you that that's who you are, that you are allowing Christ to move in and through you. And then this moment where we just watch as lives have been transformed, they've been brought from death to life, and they come and they proclaim that before us as a church family. May we never lose sight of his goodness. And even in the moments of pain, which are many and we experience them, would we never lose sight of his unwavering love for us? If you need prayer this morning, we're going to be here afterwards. We'd love to pray with you. But let me just read this as we go forth. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is our secure and steadfast anchor of our souls. He is with you, he is for you, and he will bring life to you even in the darkest of moments. And our trust in him is never misplaced. May you know his love and the ferocity of it. May you experience his grace. And may you walk forward in his peace. God bless you. We'll see you next week.